we have different kinds of relationships uh, in our lives. I have a relationship with my dad and with my wife and with my son and with my colleagues. They're all relationships. Um, but to say the least, they all don't have the same kind of intimacy. They can all be intimate, but in very different ways. So the question isn't really, do we have a relationship with Jesus? Of course we do. That's precious. The question is, what kind of relationship is this? As Christians, we're very familiar with terms like salvation, forgiveness, justification, and redemption. Words that get to the heart of what God has done for us as his people. And yet, an equally important and yet often overlooked concept in the Bible is that of our union with Christ. A profound and beautiful doctrine well attested in church history, but often misunderstood today. What does it mean to be united with Jesus? Does that union apply to our physical bodies? And how does union with Christ relate to other facets of salvation, like justification? In our interview today, I'm talking with Marcus Johnson, Assistant Professor of Theology at the Moody Bible Institute, and the author of One with Christ, An Evangelical Theology of Salvation, from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. So, union with Christ is, uh, I think it's one of those doctrines that's probably less often taught and therefore less well understood and maybe even less accepted among certain evangelical circles than maybe other doctrines related to our salvation. And I want to spend some time getting into that, the why behind that, and kind of what you've observed as a college professor uh, teaching theology to students. But maybe to start us off, I wonder if you could just uh, finish the following sentence in as many ways as you can. Union with Christ is not blank. Mm, Good question. It is not foreign to Orthodox Protestant evangelicalism. It is not merely the province of Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. It is not a new doctrine. Hmm. It is not because you have me you have me putting it negatively. It <laughs> is not absent from um, Scripture. It is it is not merely a speculation about Scripture. It's grounded deeply in Scripture. So those are some of the things that come to mind. Yeah. When you when you first asked that. Question. So so then behind some of those is this. Uh, maybe assumption that many Christians today would, evangelical Christians perhaps, we'll say, Protestant evangelicals, would perhaps be a little bit suspicious of this doctrine, would, would wonder about uh, whether or not it is really something that is part of, of our tradition. And so um, you're a college professor, like we've said, you teach students theology. Have you observed that suspicion? Is that something that is alive and, and well, so to speak, in, in your experience working with students? It is, at least initially. Um, for a, a majority of them that come from evangelical, non-denominational, Baptistic, but also even more um, mainline Protestant traditions uh, who come to Moody Bible Institute, they're surprised when I tell them about union with Christ. They're a little surprised they haven't heard much of that hmm. uh, growing up, either in their churches or in their um, maybe Christian schools. Um but the suspicion, normally speaking, doesn't last that long because I make a point of, of demonstrating, firstly and most importantly, 
um, how this doctrine uh, pervades Scripture. It's ubiquitous in Scripture. It's it's all over the place if your mm. eyes are open to it. And is there a dynamic there with it's so ubiquitous that maybe it makes it a little bit easier to miss? Almost like a, a fish swimming in water doesn't know it's wet. Yes. Uh, yes, especially when you recognize, if you don't mind a few st- st- uh, statistics, if you recognize that um, Bruce Demarest in his book, The Cross and Salvation, which is published by Crossway, yep. <laughs> he counted one time. He went through and he counted how many times does the Apostle Paul, just in Paul's letters, does he refer in one way or another to our being joined to Jesus Christ, hmm. us being in him or him being in us, phrases like this. And the number he came up with was 216 occurrence, separate occurrences of Paul alone speaking about being united to Christ. 216 in only is it 13 or 14 letters. Mm. Do the math on that. They, that means it, it's actually ubiquitous. It's very difficult to read the, any of the Apostle Paul's letters um, without, uh, let's say, without going maybe one, more than one paragraph without him referring to us being in Jesus or him being in us. That's incredible. So it must be true if people say, and this was in my own experience, that I've never really heard of being united to Christ, that that couldn't be true because mm. it's really all over the place in Scripture. Yeah. So maybe there's some other dynamic at work work, where we don't think, we don't think to think or we're not taught to think in terms of being joined to Jesus. So we can pass right by all those references, not realizing that they're really loaded. Yeah. So think of even a passage like 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful who's called you into fellowship with his son. Well, you could that could easily be read in a merely sentimental way. Yeah. Like uh, God's made peace between you and his son, or you have uh, um, God feels warmly about you because of Jesus Christ. But if you But if you take that phrase into fellowship with Jesus Christ and compare it to and put it alongside all the other ways that Paul talks about being in Jesus or being united to him, Paul means much more than just a sentimental affection, although Mm. certainly that he means a whole lot more. Well, that's what I was going to ask about is it seems like if we do talk about union with Christ even as a doctrine or think about these passages that you're referencing where, where you would say this doctrine shows forth, I think we often think in terms of relationship. That, that's a category that is very common for evangelicals. We have a relationship with Jesus, and mm-hmm. we would say it's deep, and it's intimate, and it's personal. Um, is that is that what union with Christ is all about, just this relational dynamic that we have with Jesus? It's that, but we have to ask the question, what's the nature of that relationship? Because mm-hmm. So we all know that we have different kinds of relationships uh, in our lives. I have a relationship with my dad, and with my wife, and with my son, and with my colleagues. They're all relationships. Um, But to say the least, they all don't have the same kind of intimacy. Mm. They can all be intimate, but in very different ways. So the question isn't really, do we have a relationship with Jesus? Of course we do. That's precious. The question is, what kind of relationship is this? And so um, I think a really important part of the question, what does it mean to be united to Jesus, is just that. What kind of union are we talking about here? Mm. Is it a union of sentiment or will or shared affection, or is it contractual, or is it legal, Um, merely? All of these questions are important, because you're right. I think a lot of people read um, a warm, true, uh, sort of pious relationship with Jesus into this language, and and there's nothing wrong with that, per se. But speaking of the Apostle Paul, to name one, 
they're also thinking of a much, much deeper mm. intimacy than merely change of affections or dispositions. Uh, they're actually thinking of a union that includes both our soul and our body. Yeah. So unpack that then. What what does it mean? What does Scripture or, or Paul in particular mean when he talks about us being united to Jesus? In what sense? Because uh, I, I think we're starting to get into some territory where it may be uh, people start to have a little bit of questions mm-hmm. about uh, the language that we would use here. But how would you first describe positively uh, the nature of our union? Well, we could do we we can I think it should do it in several ways. Um, maybe the place to start, even if it feels a little provocative, is to recognize how intimate, um, how profoundly real a union is being this union is, is that's being described in scripture. Hmm. And one, I think the, one of the ways to get at that, it's, it's the way that I think it's the way that happened to me. So it's sort of the, it's the way that I often teach it is to start with in order to overcome the merely sentimental read of being united to Jesus is to recognize that the teaching of scripture is that we're bodily united to Jesus. It's, it's not just our spirits or just our souls or feelings that we share with or are joined to Jesus, but that um, the, the teaching of Paul in particular is, don't you know your bodies are limbs and organs of Jesus Christ himself? He's speaking, this is, um, that's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he's insisting uh, to the Corinthians that it's not just their souls or spirits that are mm. one with Jesus, their bodies actually are included in, in, in Jesus himself. Now, that's in the context of, of Paul uh, condemning them for uh, seeing prostitutes. Is that right? Precisely. And that's why, that's why we know that his, his insistence about them being joined to Jesus there is it, it runs contrast to the fact that they united their bodies to prostitutes. And so his counter argument is you're already in a bodily union with Jesus. Mm. And so it sort of proves that Paul is saying... Um, in fact, his argument would, would turn, turn to mush if he wasn't insisting your bodies are already joined to Jesus. That's why it's a problem that you unite your bodies to prostitutes. So is there a sense then if, if we are united to Jesus and we are uh, uh, truly uh, connected to him in a, in a real way, is there, is there an ontological connection there that we should be reading into this? Are we in some way being enfolded into his, his, uh, his person? The answer is um, is yes. There, um, there, and in fact, there needs to be that ontological reality. But you do with that question, you do um, you do get at the heart of the suspicion among some people. We've taught to so honor in so many ways, rightly honor the creator creature distinction, um, uh, the impassable gulf between us and God, which is important to maintain in so many ways. Um, but the incarnation does tell us something striking and mm. and even staggering about the way that God wishes to be one with us. And uh, incarnation, uh, the grandest of all those truths, mm. that God, without ever ceasing to be fully who he is as God, becomes who we are because he wants to it bring us right into his very own life. Yeah. So then is the incarnation crucial to this? Would it have been possible to be one with God, one with the Son, we'll say, apart from the incarnation? Short answer is no. I'm, I'm, 
I'm sure a lot of listeners will want to know about the Old Testament background there, which we yeah. may not have time for. But short answer is no. All, all the promises of the nearness and closeness of God are realized and made manifest in Jesus, where he does, where God does the unthinkable thing in Jesus, which is to really stoop so low, condescend, as the word Calvin likes, so condescends to us um, that he not only deeply sympathizes at a distance, which is one thing and a wonderful thing, but he actually... Um, um, be, becomes who he wishes and um, desires eternally to love. So as to, um, like I said, bring us into his own life. And that means that Jesus is utterly unique because he's the mediator between God and man. And he's the mediator in his human flesh and blood. We have no access to God in any human way because he's God and we're human. So what will be what will be the way, therefore, that we have any contact with and availability to share in his life has to be um, has to be Jesus in his human flesh and body. That is the connection we have with his with God is his mm. is his full humanity. And you can see that in um, in uh, as at first or second Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, mm. that we have no mediator between God and uh, humankind besides Jesus, which makes him utterly unique in all of universal human history. Mm. And utterly crucial for the idea of being reconciled to God. You bet. Because if there's, if there's no meteor, then we have no access to God. Mm. But to do that in, in Scripture, we have to have one who's fully who God is and fully who we are. Only Jesus is that. Yeah. So then another question then that uh, maybe the, the theologically astute listener might be thinking right now is, all right, if we are united to uh, Jesus, God the Son, in a, a real ontological sense, uh, then uh, God the Son, though, uh, is also a member of the Trinity and is united to the Father and the Spirit mm-hmm. uh, at a fundamental level. So does that mean that in some sense we also then are participating? What's the language we would use to describe the way that we are united to the Trinity mm-hmm. uh, as a whole? The answer is yes. In fact, that's the consistent teaching of the, of the Newer Testament, uh, is that we come to share it. <laughs> you say the Newer Testament. Yes. Why, why do you say it's that? Older, newer. Uh, I guess it's a way of um, trying to avoid saying Old Testament as if it's antiquated. Okay. It's my doctor brought it, when I was at University of Toronto, would speak that way. And I sort of like that he said older rather than old, because old only means something bad in our society. Yeah. And so <laughs> they're both testaments to Jesus Christ. There's older and newer. Anyway. Mm. Well, I want to come back to that, the idea of where do we see union with Christ in the Old Testament at all? Is there any kind of uh, content there? But keep going. It's another element of the question. What kind of union are we talking about? And one of the staggering things we, we, we read in Scripture is that by being joined to Jesus, we come to share in his um, oneness with his, with his Father. This occurs over and over in, say, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14 through 17, many other places too, but for our purposes— where he, where he talks about how th- through the Holy Spirit, I will dwell in you and you will dwell in me as I am in my Father. And even in, in John 17, twice he says, Eve, you'll be in me and I'll be in you even as I'm in my Father. Then that's, that is really striking language. He's making the mm-hmm. comparison. And we want to put on all the brakes there, understandably. We have all sorts of brakes we want to put on and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you saying that we can share in the life of God? Well, Jesus says we share in the life of God. So the question is, what should we say and what should we not say? Because mm. he does, and 
he does, in fact, say it as, as strongly as I suppose one could. But what we see from the rest of the scripture, though, is Jesus is not saying, um, you will become God. You don't replace God. You don't become God. You don't that, become uncreated. For instance, you don't become uncreated. A great, um, another great point. That's different than saying we don't share in the life of the Trinity. Those, those might be two different things. Mm. One of the... Um, one of the difficulties there, I suppose, or roadblocks for us, stumbling blocks for us, is that um, we also resist, rightly in so many ways, um, doctrines of deification, which we see in, say, sometimes in Eastern Orthodoxy. I think Define it, that. What, is that. what does that mean? Literally, deification means to be made God. Right. Um, that, that, strikes, that strikes me as something that's... How is that even potentially considered... Uh, a Christian type of thought, right? And so, in that, in that, in that um, proper instinct we have to um, avoid or, or reject that notion, we—it's possible to throw baby out with bathwater there mm. and not recognize that's different than saying we don't share in the life of God. That's different than becoming God. So, um, one of the ways that um, I was helped there and how to maybe see that faithfully was that when we share in the life of God, it doesn't make us something other than human. It makes us authentically human. We were created to commune and have fellowship with God, not to be God, but to have intimate um, fellowship with God in both body and soul, have Mm. communion with him. In fact, as Calvin puts it, he says the highest end, the highest goal of humankind is communion with God. Mm. That's something not many, you know, Calvinists or Protestants think to say anymore. Yeah. So if we, if we think about it that way, that God created us to have communion with him, then to share in God's own life isn't to become something other than human. It's to, it's to become authentically and perfectly human. Mm. So you're not minimizing the creator-creation distinction. Nope. Mm. It's, it's crucial that it stay. But as long as we have that there, then we have a little bit of um, the kind of context we need to read so many different places in Scripture um, that talk about us really and truly united to God in Christ. Yeah. One of the ways that you describe and explain the doctrine of union with Christ, union with Christ in your book is uh, that we cannot be be saved by the work of Christ without first mm-hmm. being united to the person of Christ. And that gets to that that the broader conversation about salvation and the order of salvation. Uh and uh, one thing you, you note is that in our evangelical culture, evangelical theology often falls prey to this objectification of salvation. What are you getting at with that phrase? Well, when we divide Christ's work from his person, um, it, won't, it won't be too surprising if we're more interested in his work than his person, because mm. we know we can be saved by his work. So, and so... Um, so often what happens is the, the living person of Christ, Christ begins to recede from view. Not because anyone wants him to, but, we, but we're taught to think we need his accomplished work on the cross to be you know, thought of as belonging to me. Um, and so his living human incarnate person is still important theoretically to us, but we really need that accomplished work. He's important because he did that work. Okay, right, or n- not just for himself. So when we, when we, even if it's unconsciously or subconsciously, yank those, his person away from his work as if there could be some work of Christ that is available to us apart from his person, uh, which is not true, 
that isn't possible because what what Jesus does to save us takes place within him, not outside of him. Mm. And so what we need, therefore, if we hold person and work together, then we'll, we'll find that what we need is to be in Jesus. If we yank them apart, then we can start to develop soteriologies or understandings of the gospel. We don't need to be united to Jesus. We can somehow just benefit from his work. So can you give an example then of, of how uh, this, this uh, division can happen in subtle ways that maybe, you know, no one's intending. But, you know, is there an example of just like the way we maybe would often think or even talk about salvation that illustrates that? I can. Um, and I do it humbly because I know these things are um, sensitive to people, and even precious to people. But there are ways that we can talk about the cross that end up replacing Jesus. So if we run to the cross for salvation, or we pray at the foot of the cross, or we say the, um, uh, the, the cross saves us, these sorts of things, which understood rightly and, and defined by any given person, could be completely a faithful thing to do. Mm, but there's yeah. also a danger that we're actually thinking of a cross when we say that. And, you know, just I, maybe this is sort of a, I don't know if this is a, uh, maybe a sophomoric sort of a comment, but we, the cross can't save us in any real specific way that way. Mm. It's it's shorthand for the crucified Christ. He's he's the one. Yeah. And he alone can can be the one we mean when we say that. Yeah. Now, cross could simply be shorthand for that. You can see that a little bit in the Apostle Paul, maybe in First Corinthians again. Um, but it, you know, what what's safe in someone's hands may not be so safe yeah. in somebody else's hands. Well, sometimes that shorthand can uh, can sometimes if we if we are so beholden to the shorthand, can we sometimes perhaps lose uh, subtly, slowly, gradually uh, lose sight of the actual thing that it was meant to refer to? That's right. And in this case, the person it was meant to re- to refer to. Mm. In any case, when when a lot of that happens, when that divorce of person and work happens, it wouldn't be a surprise then, as as we began this um, discussion, are people sort of suspicious about union with Christ, or are they are they not really familiar with it? Well, of course not, because if you d- divide person from work, why would we say we, it's necessary for us to be joined to Jesus to be saved? when I can benefit from his work and be saved. Hmm. So it's part of the matrix uh, and the, in the various contexts in which a doctrine like union with Christ that is so precious to people like Luther and Calvin mm-hmm. for their um, 21st century heirs uh, seems strange. So you mentioned Calvin earlier as, as perhaps like the gateway for you to uh, understand this or begin to understand this doctrine. Uh, are there any other historical figures who... Uh, who saw union with Christ as central to what it means to be a Christian, be in fellowship with God. Calvin had uh, read a great deal of Martin Luther. So I'm sure you won't, I know we're not going too far outside of the Reformation here, we're kind of <laughs> staying there, but um, that was one of the uh, it, insights it was really important for me. I saw that they had shared this deep understanding. Hmm. Okay, so I had first read in my undergraduate program. I'd start, I, I took some history of Christian doctrine. I, I thought it was fabulous. And I'd read Calvin and Luther um, on the points you might expect to, maybe on the on predestination or the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of justification. I loved them. I still do. I love all those doctrines. And then when I wanted to go study my own history a bit more as a Protestant evangelical, hey, where do we come from? 
I love the way these reformers talk about Jesus and these lovely doctrines. Um, I want to go read more of them. And as I went to go read more of them, I, as I read Luther and Calvin a lot, lot, lot more, I was almost, it was almost nagging to me, almost originally in, a, in that suspicious way. Well, how come they keep talking about being joined to Jesus? How come they keep talking about believers being engrafted into his body? and becoming one with God in Jesus. And so I was a little suspicious, and I kept reading and reading and reading. Of course, they don't, they don't talk or write for very long without either quoting Scripture or mm, yeah. saying the truths of Scripture. So I, they kept forcing me back to Scripture to say, why are they talking like this? Is it just an outmoded vestige of you know, um, late medieval Roman Catholicism they hadn't, right. haven't gotten over? Right, they're still, they're still cleansing yeah, yeah, that the, stuff out from their system. Yeah, or still clinging to it or something. Who knows what? And then I realized, oh, no, not only do they um, not stop talking like that, they're actually just quoting Scripture much of the time. So it was a really Mm. great historical and scriptural education for me that I had to reckon again with. Wow, are they right about this? And, oh, by the way, I didn't know our own tradition talked about salvation in these ways. And Calvin and Luther to name two in very, very strong ways. Um, And so I came to understand that Doctrines of justification were actually couched in the larger context of being joined to Jesus. That's something I didn't know. I was going to ask about that. How, as, as Protestants, we uh, we would kind of typically hold up justification as one of those those banner doctrines that is kind of foundational to a Protestant identity and a Protestant theological system. How does this doctrine of union with Christ relate to justification? It was Calvin and Luther who taught me for an artful segue, that we're justified just exactly because we're joined to Jesus and not in some other way. It's when we it's only when we're joined to Jesus that we can be justified. Um, I think my prior understanding was that we have to be justified first for anything else to happen, like being joined to Jesus or what have you. So I was a little surprised to see that order reversed especially as I read Calvin. But it also began to make more and more sense to me uh, scripturally. If you think of something like Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, I probably would have read through before and just excused it as maybe a, again, like a sentiment, a nice Christian sentiment or something along those lines. Calvin doesn't read it that way. It's because we are joined to Jesus that we are not condemned because we share in his justification. Hmm. And so it's back to that point where we're talking about separating person from work. The reason we can't be justified before we're united to Jesus is justification is not a benefit or work of Jesus Christ that can be separated from who he is. So the only way to share in um, justification is to is to be united to Christ. And that's helpful because I think sometimes the way justification and just the idea of forgiveness of sins and Jesus atoning for our sins, taking on the punishment for our sins, uh, would ha- has struck uh, me and I know others as how, how does that, how can that work though? How is that, how can that actually happen? And I think the idea of uh, being united to Jesus can help to I don't know, explain a little bit more how it is that justification can actually work. Do you resonate with that? Strongly. It helped me a ton. 
It helped me a ton. It also helped me to see that um, one way or another, people need to find a way to get what Christ has accomplished over to them. And it helped me to see that models are developed, for lack of better terms, because it all sounds so cold, but models of soteriological, models of the gospel are developed to help see how that's possible. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, a doctrine of imputation played a big role in there in later Protestant evangelical history. Um, I'm not sure how much we can, more we can say about that, but I became convinced that, that Calvin was right about that, that the reason God regards us as righteous and our sins are forgiven, we are accounted righteous, is because he's joined us to his son mm. who has suffered our condemnation and has been raised for our justification as the righteous one. Uh, and what took place in Jesus now belongs to us because we're joined to him. So it's not as if Jesus's righteousness was sort of floating over him. This is the way I've, I've actually heard it described, and it kind of it floats over in the diagram mm-hmm. over and then sits on us. And okay, now we have Jesus's righteousness, almost like it's a, you know, it's a, a cloak or something that we put on. Jesus takes off and it moves over and we put it on. Uh, but it's it, the diagram's a little different. How, how would you how would you picture this if you were going to less to draw like it a courtroom up? and more like a marriage? Mm. I've heard it once said that the easily the most prominent analogy in Scripture between God and His people is marriage. Um, I think that the imagery you were just using, well, popularly anyway, it came from a critique that N.T. Wright had about forensic imputation. Yeah, which was interesting because he thought he was criticizing. Um, you know, a Protestant evangelical forensic imputational notions, if I remember correctly, and he and John Piper had a spat and others. Well, the strange thing about it was he was critiquing, a, in my opinion, he was critiquing a caricature because uh, if, if you read Calvin, there's not something called righteousness that can be moved from Jesus to you or to me or even regarded as ours apart from him. His, what he stresses is that we're regarded as righteous, like I said, because we are one with the righteous one. Mm. So there's no gas. There's no mere <laughs> attribution. Yeah. There's no ray gun that shoots righteousness from one place <laughs> to another because we don't, we don't have access to any work of Jesus Christ apart from being united to him because it doesn't exist. You know what? I don't know if this will be helpful for any listeners. I don't even know if it's helpful for my students when I say it, but still I feel like saying it. <laughs> I think there's, a, is, there's, there's been developed a sort of a Santa Clausifying. Speaking of Santa Claus here. That's a good word. Santa Clausifying of, of salvation. And the reason I say that is this. Santa Claus, you know, granted, it's it, he's a myth, but in the in the um, in the broader sense of that term, I just don't want to offend any people who really <laughs> like Saint Claus. But anyway, historically, there's a there's an issue there. But nevertheless, uh, popular storytelling storytelling about Santa Claus. He comes and he drops off gifts at your house, and then he leaves. Because for Santa Claus, the gift isn't Santa Claus. Mm. He has gifts to give you. He has objects to give you, and then he leaves. I fear that maybe too many of us are thinking of Jesus or God even in Jesus as more like Santa Claus. 
But the difference between Jesus and Santa Claus here is quite stark. The gift that he's giving you is actually himself. You in him. Hmm. So that's the... That's what I mean by the objectification. You're supposed to objectify Santa Claus. That's the point. Mm, We're not supposed yeah. to objectify Jesus because in in Santa Claus, gift and gift giver are not identical. Yeah. In Jesus, they are identical. Yeah. And any of the gifts then that we do receive from and in Jesus, that you're not downplaying the reality of those because Scripture speaks of justification, speaks For of sure. adoption, sanctification, Glorification; those are kind of the common, the isms of, mm-hmm. uh, or the Asians of uh, of uh, s- salvation that we are uh, often focused on. So it's you're not downplaying those. Not at all. In fact, I think um, what I learned from seeing the centrality of union with Christ made these doctrines all the more precious to me, because I saw where they came from, and where they exist, and how they exist. And I saw them, at least for me, I saw them grounded in the reality of Jesus. They became all more alive to me. I was already in love with the doctrine of justification. I'm not less so, I'm more so. Um, sanctification came, became alive to me because I saw that it wasn't a threat to my being justified. It was a beautiful gift that we have uh, where Christ dwells in us and makes us like himself. It's a, it's a gift. Hmm. Um, glorification, another one. Adoption, another one. They all, they all took on like a, a 3D. Hmm. Uh, they almost went from 2D to 3D for me, and uh, and I, I write about that in in my book. That union with Christ helped me to see why these doctrines are so precious to Protestant hmm. evangelicals. Yeah. So, do you think about union with Christ uh, often? And you wrote this book. I think nearly 10 years ago, and I, I know it was in some way uh, based on your dissertation, it was at least the, the distillation of your dissertation on Calvin and union with Christ. Um, how does this doctrine impact you today? Strongly. I, I can hardly think of an area of my life where it didn't. I don't know if my, or I don't know if the uh, listeners would understand this, but I have three children now. In, I, I think I have to say, in large part, because of, of uh, the depths of this life-giving union and what it meant to be related to Jesus Christ and what it meant um, to be united to another person, the life-giving nature of it, and how, how God was infusing uh, the beauty of his own interpersonal Trinitarian relations into the, into the life of the world. And marriage was a beautiful sign of, of the church's union with Christ in which he enters into his church and gives her life and gives us new birth. These and many other realizations that came to me um, made me think differently about the marriage that I was in. Sadly, I was committed to a, 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 a willfully childless marriage for some time. I'm kind of embarrassed mm-hmm. to say that now, but I was. I didn't think I understand what what marriage was in that way. And so even something like uh, even something like I have, a, I have a deeper sense about the whole purpose of and destiny of marriage is supposed to be. Changed my life forever mm-hmm. in that way. I also began to think of the sacraments differently. Luther and Calvin also convinced me of that. What was what is baptism if it isn't principally a, a magnificent picture of being united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection? 
And clearly the Lord's Supper is the truth that, you know, Christ lives us, lives in us, and we in him. So there are a couple of examples where mm. my life changed dramatically because, of, because Christ had become bigger in my, in my life. Mm. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for taking the time today to uh, help us perhaps recover again this beautiful uh, life-giving doctrine in union with Christ. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Marcus Johnson on Believer's Union with Christ. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, One with Christ, An Evangelical Theology of Salvation, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps to spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.